Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. U.S. President Donald Trump and Chinese leader Xi Jinping, they will meet on Saturday in Argentina on the sidelines of a G20 summit taking place in Buenos Aires. Joining us now to tell us more about that meeting and other world events is Bill Rhodes. He is commonly known as the Banker to the World. He is the author of the book, Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance. And the book, I understand, is currently in its second English edition. It has been published in Mandarin, Korean, Japanese, Portuguese, and I do this for a reason, and most recently, two editions in Spanish. Tell us what you believe will happen at the G20 meeting in Buenos Aires? Well, I think, Pim, there are great expectations that uh, President Xi Jinping of uh, China and our President Trump will be able to cut a deal uh, on trade. As you know, uh, at this point in time, we have tariffs uh, on 10% on 200, uh, they're going to come into effect in January, $200 uh, <clears throat> billion dollars worth of Chinese uh, exports. Uh, to the United States, and uh, President Trump is threatening to increase that amount to uh, 25% from 10% on that $200 billion, but also saying that if he doesn't get some indication of positive movement on the part of China, next year he could put uh, a similar tariff on the remaining $267 billion vis-a-vis uh, -vis the trade balance between the two countries. Uh, there's great hype over this, not clear what'll come out. I think the good point is they're gonna be talking face to face. The real work will be done by the people uh, under them. But there's something else going on at that G20 that people have sort of forgotten. You will have the three largest producers of oil in the world sitting down there together. In other words, the United States with, with uh, President Trump, Putin of Russia, and also, uh, the uh, head of Saudi uh, Arabia, uh, either the king or someone the king will uh, send. And as you know, one of the chief uh, disturbers, or, or let's say in the marketplace today, the chief sources of volatility is oil. And so one sidelight could be that there could be some discussion on oil also, because there's a meeting on the 5th of December of OPEC, yeah. and the feeling is, Saudi always is, is a mover there. And will Saudi go along with President Trump who wants to keep prices low or for their own income will they move on it? So this is sort of a sidelight which could come out of there as well as the discussion between uh, Trump and Xi Jinping. Yeah, because a lot of people expect a uh, supply cut at that OPEC meeting. It'll be interesting to see whether Saudi Arabia's view is tipped uh, in their connections with President Trump. I do want to home in, though, on trade and the discussion between Xi Jinping and Trump, just because this really has been a huge main driver of recent market volatility. I'm wondering, do you view the threat as additional tariffs that President Trump just came out with as a negotiating tactic, or does this indicate that President Trump is serious about trying to completely rejigger supply chains? Most people think it's a threat. On the other hand, uh, I never underestimate what he might do, having known him 
since 1990. Uh, I think the real issue here, as I've said on your show before and on uh, Bloomberg Television, is I think not so much trade but intellectual property. Because if you go f take the long view, which is so-called Chinese view, but we have to take the long view too, we've always been dominant in this area, Silicon Valley, etc. And uh, I think one of the issues that really has to be thrashed out here, apart from the trade uh, situation, is what's going to happen on intellectual property. To me, that's the most difficult thing to work on. Bill Rhodes, do you see a possibility that at the last moment, Xi Jinping of China will not go to the G20 meeting and send someone else? No, he, he actually glories in these meetings. You will note that he never misses any regional meeting, whether it be in Asia or any, uh, you know, any BRIC meeting or whatever it is. Uh, so uh, there's no doubt that he will go, barring some illness or something. The real question is, uh, is anything going to come out of it? Uh, and uh, he has said very little recently except to talk about uh, the, the need to have balanced and free trade in the world and, 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 and all of this. But President Trump has been very vocal almost daily on Twitter, and, and, and he views himself as, as a great deal maker. So we'll have to see whether there's just an airing of views or something comes out of it. I think it's about 50-50 whether something uh, specific will come out of it or we'll just go on to another phase. Bill Rhodes, I'm hoping he can understand and translate for us how Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, the new president of Mexico who is taking the helm uh, in the next few days, how he is going to treat markets, because so far the signals have been very bad and we've seen stocks plunge in Mexico, the pesos testing, uh, the year lows, and you're seeing bond yields surge to the highest in at least seven years. Well, I think one of the reasons for that, Lisa, is that uh, he was insistent that the, uh, that the government go through uh, with some sort of a referendum on the new airport, which was uh, already 35 to 40 percent complete. The $30 billion the, airport. Yeah, actually, more than that. I think the final run was supposed to be between 35 and $38 billion. And, of course, uh, very, a very few number of people showed up for this referendum or plebiscite and was turned down, and he says that based on that, he is not going to go ahead with it. And that shook up the Mexican markets because a lot of that paper, the bonds that we used to finance it, are held by Mexicans. Of course, a lot are held by Americans too, but a lot by, uh, by the Mexican business community. Uh, so there was a lot of concern there as to what will happen. I was with one of the lead Mexican business uh, people the other day, will go unnamed, and he's more optimistic uh, because he's got, as his chief advisor, Poncho Romo, who is one of the leading business people of, uh, of northern Mexico uh, as his advisor and will be his chief of staff. And uh, the last time I was with, uh, uh, with uh, Almo, which is a little over a year ago, uh, I co-hosted a, a small dinner for him here at Council of the Americas. Uh, he and uh, Poncho Romo were very positive on some of the things they wanted to do. One of the concerns is what he's also going to do in the oil business. Uh, is he going to cut out the contracts going forward? Is he going to seek to modify them? There's concern there uh, also. And, of course, the immediate crisis he faces on his border, uh, of course, is the uh, migrant uh, immigration problem with these caravans coming up from Central America. And uh, it's a very difficult situation for him because his predecessors haven't done a very good job with it. 
and our President Trump is, is talking about closing the border completely. I think what Trump is looking for is something like Merkel negotiated with Turkey, which is you keep them over there um, on your side of the border, uh, and uh, we will, from time to time, let some of them go through the normal procedures to come in. And uh, there's been a lot of talk that uh, Almo uh, and his government will put forth a program to resettle some of these migrants, but it's not clear. And he doesn't take office until December 1st. But that's the first order of importance. And then the other thing that's being watched is before the end of the month in December, he, he must uh, go to Congress and present a budget. And people are not sure what that budget's going to say. So because of all these things have been very... Uh, you know, very many doubts in the market. You've seen the stress on the Mexican peso. You've seen the stress on the stock market in Mexico. So everything is sort of on hold until uh, the week after December 1st on how he handles all these programs. Bill Rhodes, uh, just to um, continue on this oil theme and Pemex, which is the uh, nationalized, uh, the national oil company in, in Mexico, price of oil, and you started the, the segment earlier talking about oil prices. From the beginning of October to the current, let's say $51 a barrel on the NYMEX, oil has declined in value in dollars more than 33%. What does that do to the economics of Mexico? Well, certainly, uh, although Mexico doesn't produce as much as it used to, it is not particularly positive, obviously. And it's interesting to note that the president of Mexico will be at this meeting, although he'll be out of office uh, on December 1st. And also the, the president of Nigeria, which is a major producer, they're all members of the group of 30, uh, excuse me, of the group of 20. And so I think that what you're going to have here is some discussions on the sidelines of this conference about it. I think what has happened is the U.S. has every day has been reaching higher production levels with the shale oil boom that we see. But if the price of oil drops substantially below $50, say $40, a lot of those operations are not viable. Uh, but the Saudis are peak production at this point uh, many think trying to uh, assuage and gain the favor of, of uh, President Trump, but they can't continue to do that because they don't have the income. And the Russians are at peak production, too. So if you're advising a company right now in the United States with respect to their relationship in Mexico, would you advise that they would go and make an acquisition because things are so cheap right now? Or would you recommend that they stay away? You're talking about in the oil business? In the oil business or beyond, just in general, just taking a look at the backdrop here politically as well as economically? Well, as you know, because I've said it on this show several times, I think here in the United States we are in a Goldilocks period. I think for a year from now we will not be. I think next year is problematic because the Fed, I think, will definitely raise in December, and I think we're going to see a couple more uh, increases next year. And then we'll have to see what the economy uh, does. But China is slowing down big time. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I think they're going to really have a fight to keep 6% growth. It could dip next year below that. And Europe is slowing down also with the doubts on Brexit, the problems in Italy, even Germany, automobile production slowing. So what you see is the United States is a star 
in the sense of economic growth for the moment. But we're in an intertwined world, and this is why this whole situation about uh, trade, the trade wars, particularly with China, but also what's going on between the United States and Europe on automobiles, I think all of this is very, very important. And so I think we're in for even more volatility uh, in both the markets, in the sense of the stock markets, the bond markets, but also in the commodities markets over the next 12 months. Bill, just quickly, uh, because you've written in the past and proved prescient when it comes to stock prices. You're not a stock picker. I understand that. But that same period, beginning of October to the current level of stock prices, down more than 9%. You kind of telegraphed that in a lot of your writing. What do you see next? Well, I think what the uh, people on the floor of the stock exchange are hoping to trade is that we're going to get the famous Santa Claus rally. But that's going to be very much tied in with what we've been discussing on the G20. Because if we don't see some progress between China and the United States, and you want to take the radical view uh, that President Trump will go ahead and increase uh, the tariffs on China, and uh, we don't have any resolution on oil, then I think we could be in a difficult situation. Thank you very much. Bill Rhodes, as always, banker to the world. Bill Rhodes, president and chief executive of William Rhodes Global Advisors. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley said in a Security Council meeting earlier that Russia's shooting and seizing of Ukrainian vessels is, quote, outrageous violation of sovereign Ukrainian territory and marks yet another reckless Russian escalation. Here to tell us more about what is going on in geopolitics, including Russia and the United States, is uh, retired Admiral James Stavridis. He is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He is, of course, a retired U.S. Navy Admiral, former military commander of NATO, and Dean Emeritus of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Admiral Stavridis, thank you for being with us. Give us your thoughts, your reaction to the Russian shooting and seizure of those Ukrainian vessels that were transiting to the Sea of Azov from the Black Sea? Well, first of all, uh, having spent my life at sea, even I had to uh, take a moment to recall where the Sea of Azov is. It's tucked away in a little corner of the Black Sea. It's very shallow. It's smaller than uh, U.S. Great Lakes. Uh, but it has now become a flashpoint. And, you know, Pim, I would say, whoever heard of the Gulf of Tonkin before Vietnam? So, A, there is a potential for this to grow into something much bigger. B, Nikki Haley, as usual, is completely right. This is an outrageous seizure of sovereign warships on the high seas. That's a big deal in international law. And C, the question is, how far is Putin willing to go? He's a risk taker. He's clearly probing here. And I am very concerned that this could escalate into something very dangerous, not only for Russia and Ukraine, but for NATO and the West. So can you just extrapolate, extrapolate out what would happen in an escalation like that? I can, Lisa. Uh, what I would see happening if there is not an immediate, strong pushback in response to this event, uh, Putin will continue to probe. And his real objective here is not simply to control the Strait of Kirsch, which is what connects the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov, but 
He also wants a land bridge from Russia through to Crimea, and that requires him to consolidate real control over southeast Ukraine, notably the city of Mariupol. So I could see a kind of Christmas surprise where we're all very distracted. There hasn't been a lot of pushback, and Putin decides now's the time to really consolidate a strip of land between Crimea, which he's already seized, and the mainland of Russia. And you say that there hasn't been a lot of pushback. You're talking about President Trump and his response, correct? I am. And uh, otherwise, we have seen a great deal of pushback uh, from European nations, from NATO as an alliance. We saw the Secretary General. We saw, fortunately, our U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. I think we're going to miss her in a few months, uh, pushing back hard. We haven't seen the White House step up and go at this. And the big thing, as you've been talking about, is the G20 down in Argentina, President Trump will be there face-to-face with President Putin. I hope he raises this both privately and publicly. Admiral Stavridis, uh, Russia has already built a bridge connecting Crimea to the Russian mainland. It's a 12-mile bridge, I believe, and it is so low that it prevents Panamax vessels from actually docking in the Ukraine city of Mariupol. So is this just another extension of, will we see more things like that? Unfortunately, I think we will. Um, Given the state in general of Russian infrastructure and their construction abilities, I think no less than six bridges have collapsed in Russia in the last 12 months. Uh, Perhaps the Ukrainians shouldn't overly worry about that. But in in all seriousness, yes, Pim, this is part of what is sometimes called hybrid warfare. This is what Russia uses without actively going to war with the nation, but it's this combination of using the social networks, using propaganda, troops that are not marked in their uniforms, special forces seizing points, supporting the rebels in southeastern Ukraine, building bridges that block ships. All of that is part of what I would call hybrid warfare. Putin plays that very well, and it's a dangerous game. Admiral, I want to shift gears a little bit to the southern border here in the northern hemisphere. The U.S. has uh, had an increasingly tense relationship with Mexico over immigration. President Trump threatening to close all ports of entry from Mexico into the United States as a result of illegal immigration. Can I just get your sense of how feasible that would be and, and what's been going on down there in the southern border? Well, first of all, um, we could certainly, we, the United States, could certainly build a, quote, big, beautiful wall. And, Lisa, it could stretch for 1,800 miles. It could be 35 feet high. Um, It would cost billions and billions of dollars. But here's a newsflash, and I know this is true because I'm an admiral. Right to the left of the wall is an ocean. People are going to find ways to get here. So do we need to control our border? Absolutely. What we need is a smart wall, if you will, that is a big physical structure in some places, is unmanned vehicles patrolling in other places. We need to plus up the border patrol and give them the resources to do their job on the border. We ought to get our troops off the border. That's not their job. That could lead to dangerous confrontation. And so we need to control the southern border, certainly, but we need to do it in a a more constructive fashion. And above all, to conclude, we need to do it in cooperation with Mexico, not in an antagonistic relationship. Threats of simply closing the border are untenable and would hurt both nations. 
Admiral Stavridis, in your most recent book, Sea Power, The History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans, you underscore what you just described, but is Mexico and the migrants or the asylum seekers or the people on the border, is that really a security threat to the United States? It is not, in the sense that they are not invading the United States. There is a de minimis, a tiny percentage of truly bad actors. Most of these people are economic refugees. They have a legitimate case, both economically and because of violence in Central America, to plead their case for asylum. We can either grant it or not, but we ought to respect that process. I do like the idea of working with Mexico to do this on Mexican soil. Uh, Culturally, linguistically, geographically, that makes sense. I hope we can cut that deal. But as I said before, Pim, what we need is a cooperative relationship with Mexico to deal jointly with this challenge. Admiral, just 10 seconds. I'm curious, do you think that we have a greater degree of geopolitical risk today than a year ago or a uh, lower one? It is higher because of the things we've discussed, but principally because of ongoing confrontation between the United States and China economically and the South China Sea. We are steaming into dangerous waters, as we would say in the Navy. It's going to require international cooperation to solve these problems. Admiral, we so appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being with us. Admiral James Tavridis, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, retired U.S. Navy Admiral and former military commando of NATO. Always wonderful to get his thoughts. This is Bloomberg Markets with Pim Fox and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. A lot of people are sitting around and thinking, what will 2019 hold? Well, if you listen uh, to Emily Rowland, perhaps you might be getting a little concerned, perhaps. Emily Rowland, head of capital markets research for John Hancock Investments, based in Boston, but joining us here in our 1130 studios. I was reading the outlook for 2019 that you put together. You said you see a market peak after the yield curve inverts and advised against taking on too much risk and uh, perhaps even advise shedding some. Please explain. Well, I can see you read all the way to the end of the outlook there. The first part of it actually states that we are still positive on risk assets. We do still think that there's room left to go in this cycle. The yield curve hasn't inverted yet. The leading economic indicators are still coming in in positive territory. But to us, the time to repair the roof is when the sun is shining, right? Looking ahead into 2019, you know, we're going into a very, very different macro regime here, right? The Fed is continuing down this path of rate normalization. Quantitative tightening is going to increase meaningfully. We shed $400 billion from the balance sheet this year. That goes to $600 billion next year. That's a very different environment for investors who are used to plentiful liquidity, used to low rates, the Fed buying up fixed income. And we think that that should lead us to a point where potentially we do see a yield curve inversion and then potentially a market peak down the road. Not there yet, but again, preparing to become more defensive. Is the world over leveraged? <laughs> that's a great question. And I think that's certainly a concern as we head into into 2019. And it's a it's a risk that we're watching. Um, you know, and I think as credit conditions tighten, as liquidity is withdrawn from the system, you know, you could see that put real pressure on markets globally. Do you think that emerging markets is a haven right now? 
<laughs> That's an interesting question too. And we've seen, you know, a bid for emerging markets over the last few weeks here. We were down more than 20% at one point this year through October, and we're starting to sort of carve out a bit of a bottom here. You know, I think investors are pricing in a somewhat, you know, better uh, resolution to trade and tariffs. We'll have to see what happens after the G20 meeting this weekend. You know, but for us, we're not ready to go to really go in uh, to emerging markets yet until we see some of the fundamentals start to turn around. So we look at things like earnings estimates, which are really continuing to move sideways in emerging market equities. We're going to need to see that really come back in order to go more positive there. So we're neutral on EM right now. What are you finding when you look at investment behavior? Because they've certainly voted with their money when it comes to technology stocks. Is it likely that investors will put their money into cash? Well, you know, we've really seen that happen. And looking back on 2018, it's been the year of cash and the year of ultra short bonds. Who would have thought? That would have happened in 2018, right? And as we look at investors really piling into to cash and ultra short, short bond funds, we think that that actually might reverse a bit as we head into 2019. If you look at the way that investment grade corporates have performed this year, if you look at the way the bar cap ag has performed this year, it's actually been almost like 2013. Investment grade corporates have really been beaten down. The ag's down one and a half, two percent. When you look back at 13, when you look back at 2008, when fixed income was really under pressure broadly, the following years were actually quite good for fixed income. So it sounds like rotation into investment grade is something that you foresee in the future because it's gotten pretty beaten up. What are you looking for? What's sort of the trigger that will make you reassess and start shedding risk more meaningfully? Yeah, so I think what we'll be looking for first, of course, is a yield curve inversion. We're right around 24, 25 basis The yield curve, today. two tens you're looking at? Two tens, okay. yep, looking at two tens. Um, we'll be looking for you know economic indicators to really start to roll over meaningfully. They're still coming in positive. Things like consumer confidence, things like jobless claims, you know, very low levels here. That data is all still very good, but of course, markets are you know forward looking, right? So you know, we're looking for an, for a you know a catalyst. Um, we need those things to play out. Um, we also need to see what happens with earnings, right? Looking on the equity side, you know, earnings. Of course, peak earnings are behind us, but that doesn't mean that earnings growth broadly is behind us. If we start to see earnings estimates and earnings revisions start to roll over, that's going to be another indication for us that it's time to get more defensive. Again, we're not there yet. Uh, just give you about 30 seconds. Do you foresee a time when credit rating agencies are going to have to issue revisions to their analysis of investment grade companies? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of talk about investment grade corporates and the risks in the triple B market. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, we will keep an eye on that. But at this point, again, investment grade corporates have been treated like it's a 2013 or even 2008 type environment. And we think that there could be an opportunity for them to, you know, come back, catch a bit a bit. You know, our managers are, are continuing to allocate uh, portions of their portfolio there, and we're comfortable owning some investment grade corporates heading into the next year. Thanks very much for being with us. Very Thank enlightening. You. Emily Rowland is the head of capital markets research for John Hancock Investments, based in Boston, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.